0: explain everything. You don't give us everything our minds wouldn't be able to contain it. But you give us enough uh, to worship you appropriately, to respond to you appropriately. And so we ask that uh, as we uh, spend the next few moments uh, unpacking these verses in chapter 9 of, of the letter to the Romans, uh, we ask that you would guide us, fill us with your spirit, so that we can receive it, not just intellectually, Father, but that our hearts will be changed uh, by it, be transformed by it. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Chapter nine of Romans is, is seeking to answer a question. If we don't get that question off the bat, we're going to get lost. All right. And the question is a pretty simple one. If you've ever been told by your dad or your mom or an uncle or an aunt, I promise that on Thursday I'm going to pick you up we're going to go to Six Flags. I promise that I'm going to be home for Christmas. I promise I'll be home tonight in time for the game that I won't have extra work. I promise this, I promise that. Right. And uh, a lot of times. you. There's God's promise. Nothing will separate you from my covenantal love toward you. Not death, not life, not enemies, not anybody, not even you. Nothing will separate us. And then the objection Paul thinks about, what about my people? Because Paul is an Israel. And he has to admit, most of my people, by far, the majority of my people, even though God gave them all these promises, they're not in. So does God not keep his promise that? Something happened with Israel such that God like, evolved. I guess I should have put an asterisk next to my promise and say, as long as these other things don't happen. So the question is, does God need to put a caveat, an asterisk? And that's his promise. And here's why it matters to you. This isn't about politics. The reason why it matters to you is because if God dumped Israel in, What's to say he won't dump you? If God made promises to Israel, and Israel for the most part is not in, why should we take Romans chapter 8 and glory in it when it might not be true of us later? That's why it matters. He's writing to the believers in Rome. This is a mixed audience. He's not only writing to Jews, but it matters to them. Because if God divorces this people, what's to say he won't divorce that people? That's the question. And that's why it's important. Look at chapter 9. The first five verses pose the problem. You can see his heart breaking for his people. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh, They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenant, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. So there's the problem. Israel got the covenants. Israel got the promises. Israel wrote the Bible. And his heart breaks for them because they're not in. In fact, he says, I wish I could sacrifice myself. I would throw myself in hell if I knew that that would save everybody else of my people. But I I can't. That's an impossibility. But there's the problem. They got the law, the worship, the promises. They're the ones that God adopted. They're the ones that are supposed to attain to this glory. They got the covenants. This is all verse 4. They had the patriarchs in verse 5. You know, we talk, we read about, we read in the Bible, we read about Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. They are the fathers, right, of Israel. They have all that. And they're not in. It breaks his heart. So the question is, did God's word fail to them? Should God put an asterisk next to his promise? And his answer in verse 6 is no. God's promise is perfectly clear and perfectly fulfilled. No asterisks. Nothing happened between the Old Testament and the New Testament that made God go, Well, I, I mean, I tried. It's what I said happened. Now, at this point, this is what fractures many Christians and denominations and Christians argue about because they don't understand how to receive what Paul is saying. I don't presume to have all the answers on everything, but I want to try to walk us through the passage as clearly as as we can, following what he's saying and tracking with his arguments. He does say that the Israelites, for the most part, are out. But he also says all God's promises that he made to Israel are fulfilled. So so how we put those two things together is going to take some work, but I think he's going to do the work for us. He says in verse 6, Uh, It is not, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. What he's saying there is all those promises in in, in verse 4. What about their adoption? What about the glory? What about the covenants? What about the giving of the law? The worship, the promises. He's saying all of that has not failed. What God has said, God's word concerning all those things is perfectly accurate and perfectly true and perfectly fulfilled. So now you know his answer is going to be, well, if God divorced a certain people, won't he divorce us? And his answer is, he never divorced. God to his vows, period. And so the answer is going to be, he won't divorce you. But now he's got to prove it, because it's a sticky situation. They're looking around this like, he doesn't divorce? Look at Israel. And he's like, yeah, let's look at Israel. So the next several verses are going to be Paul explaining that connection because if he can't prove it, you don't have confidence in God. I mean, if he can't prove that God kept his promises to Israel, he can't prove that God will keep his promises to you, to me. And so he gives the answer in verse 6, and now he's got to back it up. Here's the first thing he says. He says in verse 6, For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Oh, that's now we're getting deep. He's saying, just because your ethnic heritage is Israel doesn't make you actual Israel. Ooh. Now, how, how would you receive that? If you have ethnic pride, right, if you're proud of your heritage, and somebody said, just because your parents are from there, doesn't mean you're one of them. You'd be like, offended. Somebody, depends. You know. Depends on how, how you are with all that. But of course, if this is not about, I love Puerto Rico, I like the the, the food, I like the music, I like when I was the kid falling asleep with the sound of the copies, you know, making noise. This is about God's promises. This isn't about the flag hanging from your rear view mirror. This isn't about your favorite boxer, or your favorite team, who you root for in the Olympics. This is about God's adopted people. The point of pride for Israel is, we've got God. What do you got? Good wrestling? Good sports? Right? We've got God. We've got the adoption. We're promised glory. And Paul's saying, you should be proud of that, but you should be proud of that if you're really Israel. You can't just be proud of that if you're just having So there's ethnic Israel, the people that are outside, genetically, they're from Abraham, and there's the people that are really from Abraham. Abraham's faith. And there's a difference. And his argument, his argument, God never promised all those things to every ethnic Jew. He only promised those things to specific ones within the ethnic group, even from the beginning. It's not as though God's word has failed, because not all who descended from Israel ethnically belong to Israel spiritually. That's my clarification, but I think that's what he means. And not all are children of Abraham, just because they're his offspring. So again, not all are spiritual children of Abraham, just because they're physical children of Abraham. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named, Isaac being that son of promise, Verse 8, this means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. That is not a game-changing reality in the New Testament. God didn't go, in the Old Testament, this is about ethnicity. This is about being physically from Abraham. And then never mind, Jesus came, he was born, and what what a better program. This is way better. Rather than being ethnic-based let's just make an equal opportunity to everybody and it's open up to other races no New Testament is just a continuation of the Old Testament because even in the Old Testament it was always about uh, faith in God's promise and people who cling to God's promise by faith those are the children of Abraham because Abraham's fatherhood is one of righteousness being counted to him because of his faith so from the very beginning who is Abraham? Why is he the forefather? He's the forefather of faith. Not just ethnicity. So there's people who are actually the children of God. And if you can just count Abraham as your genetic offspring, Abraham is back there at the top of your family tree, that doesn't cut it. And it was always that way. Look at verse 9. It says, For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. There's the original promise to Abraham and Sarah about having a son of promise, even though he's unable to have kids, she's unable to have kids, they were never able to have kids, and now they're too old to have kids, even if they were able to have kids. The cards is stacked against them. It is impossible. She is barren. She cannot have children, and God says, you're going to have a child because I promised it, not because you can work it, not because you can manufacture, not because you went to the right doctor, right? It's because I'm going to do it. There's the original promise. And he says that was the promise in verse 9. And he says in verse 10, And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad. Remember, she had twins. They both, are both twins in? They're both genetically the same.
1: They both have the same
0: parents. They both have the same grandparents. But only one of the twins is in and the other twins not in. Is Paul's point it says in verse 11, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told the older will serve the younger. Not only did he choose one, he chose the wrong one. The older brother is supposed to get everything. The one, even if they're twins, the one that comes out of the womb first, gets everything. And he's like, nah, the younger one will get he reversed it. Why? Because Jacob was better than Esau. Have you ever read the Old Testament story, the Genesis, and Jacob's a good guy Esau's a bad guy? Incorrect reading of Genesis. Jacob's a bad guy and Esau's a bad guy. Jacob just won. And the reason why Jacob gets the blessing, even though he swindled it out of his dad, even though he uh, <laughs> used Esau's weaknesses against him, he's a swindler he's conniving this comes back on him later Jacob's not he's not a righteous an exemplar of righteousness walking around and just in case we were confused on that matter Paul makes it clear before they did anything good or bad God made the choice so it has nothing to do with which one was better Jacob or Esau it just has to do with God going that way. why? because I said so Now that sounds harsh, but you need to remember, you need to remember, Paul is arguing, defending, that when God makes a decision, he does it undecided. And that needs to be true for us to have assurance. So many scholars, Christians, pastors, denominations stumble over themselves trying to undo Romans chapter 9 because it sounds so harsh. How can God choose one and not choose somebody else that's so mean? But if you undo that, you undid chapter 8, which undoes chapter 7, you lose all the bones. Because you have no confidence. Nothing shall separate separate me, except when I hit depression, I might bounce on God. Uh, the, the, the temptation of riches, the temptation of the world, when culture goes the other way and it's too hard, I might lose my job, if a gun is my head, deny Christ, I might deny him, that'll separate me. There's all these circumstances that might separate me from God, but that undoes Romans chapter 8, which says nothing will separate you from God. And the question is, well, what about what about Israel? And he's like, Israel isn't separated from God, bro. They're not separated from God. You're thinking of ethnic Israel, but God never made a promise to every ethnic Jew. His promise was to those who cling to the promise of the coming Messiah through faith ever, ever since the beginning. And God chooses, God elects who's going to be in that group of believers. He says in verse 11 that he did this with Jacob and Esau, he did this in order that God's purpose of election might continue. Not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I love, Esau I hate. Now, last time we saw that God's covenantal love is a specific kind of love. He's talking about a saving love. He's not talking about a generic love for every person ever born. He's talking, And he's not also talking about a specific hatred. Look at Esau. He's so hairy. He's a hunter. He doesn't do other things. I hate him. Uh, he, he gets hungry so easily. I mean, if I had to choose between the du- two dudes, I'm Esau. You know? right? And he's like, no, it's not because of who Esau was or what his interests were. And same with Jacob. It's because I want to demonstrate my election purposes. I want to show that a, per- a people can be saved because I chose them. And I keep them And they're saved all the way through to the end because of my action toward them. So that's why he did it with the twins. That's why he does it with everybody across the globe. Now, he knows what you're thinking. That sounds unjust. (laughs) That doesn't sound fair. Neither of them did anything. He chose Jacob. Why should Jacob get to go? We are so concerned with fairness, right? Right? So when we see something like this, it seems arbitrary. That God plucks one, doesn't pluck the other. That's unfair. God is unjust. He goes, no, he's not unjust. He may not do things the way you like. He may not do things the way you want it to be. He might be writing a story differently than you'd be writing a story. But he's not unjust. Here's the objection verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means is God unjust. He's not unjust. Here's how he unpacks it. He goes again to the Old Testament. He wants to show it's always been this way. Nothing here, nowhere here does he quote Jesus as coming on the scene and saying something new. He's trying to show you in the Old Testament was always this way. Here's what the Lord said to Moses, verse 15, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So that it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, uh-oh, you remember Pharaoh, didn't want to let God's people go. He says to Pharaoh, for this purpose, this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth, so that he has mercy on whomever he will, and he hardens whomever he You know, if we ever had an instinct to take a black sharpie mark and kind of rub stuff out, that might be a verse that does that. It's offensive. Because Paul is saying, not just that those who are in are there because God did it, but he says, I use other people to show off my glory in a different way. Some people I show off my glory by saving them. Some people I show off my glory by defeating them. And I raised Pharaoh and allowed him to get all kinds of power and all his might, and all his glory and statues of him glistening in the Egyptian sun. And then in front of everybody, I defeated him. And I raised him up so that I could do that. Now this is what's interesting. This is Paul defending how God is just and not unjust. And I think the, the difficulty that we have is we assume That Jacob and Esau are perfect, blank slates that are just innocent people, and then God chose Jacob to be the righteous good guy, and God chose Esau to be the bad guy. Esau didn't have anything to do with it, he just chose Esau to be that. Pharaoh was this strapping young man who's like, oh, I don't want to be king. Oh, you have to be king to serve your people. Okay, fine. What should we do with the Israelites? Well, let's try to help them. He's a good guy. And then God came around, just looked around, and just tapped him on the shoulder, and he became a bad guy. And suddenly he's like, no, let's enslave. Let's keep the Egyptians enslaved, just like my you know, predecessor did. And let's be mean to people, and let's create an army, and let's build things that look like me, bigger than everything else. Let's glorify myself everywhere, Right? No. Not right. What does is, what is Scripture say over and over again? Nobody's righteous. Nobody's righteous. There were two evil babies in an evil woman's belly. One of them got left to their evilness, and one of them got plucked out. Pharaoh's walking around evil, but he's, he's a coward. So God fortifies him and hardens him so he wouldn't get defeated on the first plate. God's like, I want to demonstrate nine plays up in here, and he's too wimpy to do it, unless I harden him. So God is not stepping in on somebody who's a follower, a believer, a worshiper of God, and now I'm going to change your mind, never mind, I want you to be a bad guy. He takes somebody who's already a bad guy, makes him into this ultra-villain to show off that God can't be defeated by anyone. To other people, he demonstrates mercy. If God only demonstrated justice, we'd all be dead. That's not Calvin, that's Paul. If God demonstrated justice to everybody, everybody would be dead. Nobody would be plugged. We'd all be Esau, we'd all be Pharaoh. But then God demonstrates mercy. And mercy, by definition, means you didn't deserve it. Justice, by definition, means you do deserve it. So is God just if He shows nobody mercy? Of course He is. Of course He is. What should God do with evil punishment? So He demonstrates justice. And out of those to whom He demonstrates justice, He chooses to show mercy on some. Now we go, Why some and not everybody? He could have done nobody and been perfectly just. Well, He anticipates that question verse 19, he imagines somebody saying, well then, he says you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? Why does God still find fault? Who can resist his will? That question is I mean it's a private question. The person isn't saying uh, why does God turn good people into evil people and then some evil people into good people? That's not the question because that question would have missed his previous argument. Right, Everybody's in the same boat. The question is, why does God take somebody who's already evil and harden them, some of them, like Pharaoh, to be even more evil? To do other things so that God shows off his purposes? I mean, can you really blame Pharaoh for, for being stiff-necked for all those plays? Why does God do that with certain people who are not in the in group. And his answer also is a punch to the gut, and not the answer you necessarily want. It says in verse 20, But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Well, what is molded say was mouldered? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power has endured with much patience? vessels of wrath, prepared for destruction, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. We'll just pause there. They're playing it on back. But again, we drop in and we read, sometimes we read 19 through 23, just by itself right there. And what it sounds like is God comes and he's got clay. Beautiful clay rich clay, perfectly moldable clay. The best clay, I'm not, I never, I've never made anything from clay, but I imagine there's like not-so-great clay and awesome clay, and then you've got this awesome clay, you can make anything you want out of it. It's this innocent clay that can go this way, that way, or the other way, and God decides, out of this clay, which can be good or bad or anything, I'm going to make some of it and put it on the good shelf. I'm going to make some good and make it ugly and put it on the bad shelf just to show how good these really look. But that misses the argument from the previous verses. And all of Romans and all of scripture which show that clay that he's beginning with isn't Adam and Eve in the garden. It's Jacob and Esau in the womb. They're both evil. It's not good clay. It's messed up clay. It's clay he should discard. It's clay he shouldn't do anything about and do anything with. Except to discard it. Throw his wrath upon it. Now out of this clay that is, none of it is righteous. None of it is good. Even the righteous things they try to do are like filthy rags, Isaiah says. Okay? No one, no one is righteous. There's the clay. Out of that clay, some of it, he's like, all right, you want to rebel? I'm going to make you this ultra, I'm going to inject you with steroids and make this rebellion big because I'm going to show the world that you can't rebel against me and defeat me. But there's others, and that's just. And then there's others that I'm going to save. Not because this is a good part of the play. He consistently chooses the weaker. Esau was a big, strapping hunter. Jacob was like, I need suit. <laughs> right? He's like, I'll choose Jacob. You know, Jesse presents all his big sons. Don't you have any other sons to be king? Well, there's this guy on the field. But, I mean, <laughs> I mean, David. I mean, So he's not taking this clay and choosing, let me choose the best out of this group, let me choose the, the upper echelon of, of good people. They're all evil, let me choose the best of the evil. Sometimes he chooses the worst of the evil. What did Paul say about himself? I'm the chief of sinners, I'm the worst. God chose me. So Paul making this case, this argument only makes sense if you see the clay is already healed. What bothers us and messes us up is when we see the clay as a blank slate that hasn't done anything yet. And then God forces some of the clay to be evil. And that is not what scripture teaches anywhere. What scripture does teach is clay that is already evil, God has two options. Surrender to his own evilness and demonstrate his glory and justice. Or have mercy and overpower the will of those who are evil, some of them. Overpower their will and grant them something called faith, and that makes them children of Israel. Because from the beginning, that's what Abraham story, the Abraham story was all about. And so, some vessels are prepared for wrath. And, and look what he says: Does God click his heels? Does he enjoy doing that with Pharaoh? Look, he endures it with much patience. He hates it, but he endures it. He lets it go. It keeps happening. He hardens Pharaoh's heart to let it keep happening. So that he can get to this this goal of defeating him through the rescue of his people. But other people, they just display God's glory through mercy. Verse 23. The origin of his glory displayed through vessels of mercy which he prepared beforehand for glory. Uh, For those of you who are nerdy enough to start googling predestination, double predestination. What does Pastor Lucas think about this? Let me just help you out real quick for three minutes, okay? I think this passage teaches double predestination because you can't have single predestination. If you have a group of evil people and God chooses some to go out, he, by definition, by choosing group A to come out, he, by definition, left group B to their own devices, didn't he? Where people misunderstand double predestination is, again, here's a blank slate nobody's evil or good, and God predestines some to be good from their blank slate, and from the blank slate he predestines some to be evil. And that's not what scripture teaches. You've got evil clay, and God elects some out of that clay to show mercy, and the rest get what they deserve. God doesn't force them to do evil. He doesn't make them to be evil. They're already evil. Now, God hardens somebody's heart. I think that is a way for God to uh, sort of remove a grace in somebody's life that would keep them from doing things that are worse. When he leaves us to our own devices, he can harden us for purposes that are his own. That is not teaching that God made somebody who's innocent evil. He doesn't make somebody sin. He's not the author of sin. But here you have a group of people all destined to wrath, and out of that group he plucks some for mercy. And the reason why we can't question it is because you don't have the right to until you make your own planet with your own people who rebel against you and you figure out what to do with them. Then you can talk to God about what he did with his people. Oh, you can't. You don't have the power to. You don't have the wisdom to. What was God's answer to Job? All the suffering? You know, at the end of Job, God, go, well, hey, let me give back to curtain and explain to you how the cosmos works. See, Satan came up to me. He doesn't do any of I had this bet going with Satan. You were my God. He doesn't say any of that. We did that as the reader, but all Job got was, you're too small to ask me any questions about, where were you? Where were you when I created the earth? Where were you? And Job's response is, I'm going to shut up now. I'm at the end of my theology. Paul uses the same argument here. The clay can't tell the potter, no, I should be this. I should go on that shelf. Especially when all of that clay, none of it should be molded, friends, but to be vessels of wrath. Here's how he closes the section. He says, this has always been true. He quotes Hosea and he quotes Isaiah. He says in verse 25, or I left off in 23, so it's back up there. In order to make known the riches of his glory from vessels of mercy, which he had prepared beforehand for glory, his glory we get to partake in. Verse 24 even us whom he has called not from the Jews only but also from the Gentiles right it's always been about faith that means it was always not just a a certain ethnicity. Verse 25 as indeed he says in Hosea those who are not my people I will call my people and her who was not beloved I will call beloved and in the very place where it was said to them you're not my people there they will be called sons of the living God People who aren't, are. People who can't be, are. Right? People who aren't my people, they're my people. And you used to be called, you're not in. Now you're called in. And he's saying, God always promised to bring people into his fold that way. Not through birth. Not through just physical lineage. But through his own personal rescue of people. And they will come from the Gentiles as well. This is what Isaiah said in verse 27. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea. Ethnically. Okay. Again, there's a distinction. The ethnic people of Israel, they're a multitude. This is Isaiah. Only a remnant of them will be saved. Verse 28. For the Lord will carry out His sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. He's saying the only reason why any of the Israelites are believers today is because God elects. Otherwise, they would just be wiped out like Sodom and Gomorrah. So he's saying God never failed his promise. He's kept his promise in two ways. A. The promise has always been about faith in the Messiah. It's always been about faith, promise, faith in His promise. It's never been about ethnicity. And second, even if you only count ethnicity, they're not all lost. There's a remedy, and if it weren't for God, there wouldn't even be a remedy. So does God keep His promises? Yes. He's always been a promise keeper. He will always be a promise keeper. And even though it's difficult for us to stomach the doctrine of election. That is the very doctrine that saves you and makes you sure that God is over this thing. Will I make it in the end? God is not the uncle that says, I'm going to take you to six next Friday, and then Friday it rains. Sorry. I'll be home for Christmas. Boss calls. Oops. I'm not the boss of my work. God will never make that phone call. Sorry, I promised this, but it has to be that. Ever. Why? Because everything is in His hands. See? The only other position you can take is that God surrenders some stuff and goes, look, I started things off. I created the garden. I created the world. I sent Jesus. Now it's up to y'all. And what is Paul saying? If it was up to us, we would all be like who? Sodom and Gomorrah, just like the Israelites would be. Unless unless God does something that in our wicked minds we quickly think is unfair... Unless God demonstrates mercy, and it looks arbitrary to us, but am I going to stand there and argue with God? God, why'd you choose me? Why'd you choose me? Do I really want to push that? Thank you for choosing me. I don't know why you chose me and not somebody else. I'm not better than my uncles. I'm not better than my brother or sister. I'm not better than my neighbor why did you choose me at the end of the day? I either point to things about myself that make me think that's probably why God chose me or I point to God doing what he wants because he's the potter. From that falls an assurance that if God decided to use me as a vessel of honor, he will make me into that vessel of honor and he will bring me all the way to the end. No caveats, no asterisks, no ifs. Because God is over all things. He does it. Let's close with this because we've talked about this promise. We've talked about how people are in and some people are out. And he doesn't make it explicitly clear in the rest of chapter 9. But we know there's a way that some people who weren't called God's people in verse 25 are called God's people. There's a way where some who weren't beloved will be beloved. And how does Paul wish he could get people there? When he thinks about lost people, especially of his own ethnic group, how lost they are, what does he wish he could do? The same thing Moses wished he could have done. Do you remember when Moses approached God and said, God, these people, sacrifice me, save them. And Paul's saying, I wish I could do that. I wish I could say, God, sacrifice me to save them. That's what he said in verses 1 through 5. Verse 3, I wish I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brother." Why did God tell Moses no? Why did God tell Paul no? The same reason why he told Abraham no. Remember he told Abraham, you're going to keep this covenant with me? Sacrifice your son. Sacrifice your son, and I'll show that through the sacrifice of your son, the son that I promised you, the son upon whom you've pinned all your hopes. Sacrifice him, and then I'll see we can do this together. And as he's raising the knife, God says, stop. This is not how this is going to play out. A son will be sacrificed, but you're not going to do it. Moses is going to do it, and Paul's not going to do it. I'm going to do it. I'm going to sacrifice my son so that one person is a curse, and a whole slew of people can be called my people. I'm going to make one person cursed so that they're not my son anymore. It's going to darken on them. That son is going to ask why, as a father, I've turned my face away. So that people who should be turned away get brought in. That's how I do it. And anybody who's in is somebody who's placed their faith in that exchange. God makes the substitute, and He's the one that makes the promise unbreakable. Not the sacrifice of any of us. And so I ask you today are you aware of God's promise? I mean, are you going to make it? Do you have the covenants God's promise? Do you have the promise of glory? Or are you unsure? If your life ends prematurely tonight, where are you going to be? You've got two options. Awesome. Look back on your past week, look back on your past month. I think, I mean, I think so, I don't know. I, 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 I dropped a, a curse word the other day. Did I apologize for that? I was mean to my spouse yesterday. I think we patched it up. Did I patch it up enough? Did I make it up? I said, sorry, but I haven't really been paid. You can live in that nightmare in which you, if you were honest with yourself none of us will be saved or you can revisit a passage like this and go, okay, I'm a play what kind of play am I? Like, am I the kind of play that has seen the value and the beauty of God's promise in His Son Jesus Christ and that's how He makes this unbreakable bond with His people if that's the source of my hope I'm going to make No answers, no caveats, no buts or ifs. We make it to the end because God elects, not on the basis of ethnicity, but on the basis of his promise of his sacrificed son, Jesus Christ, on our behalf.